58 minutes and 53 seconds after midnight, on December the 26th, 2004, a massive underwater earthquake occurred off the west coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. It triggered a series of devastating tsunamis in countries bordering the Indian Ocean, resulting in the deaths at the last count of 229,866 people, and it caused widespread destruction. And while these images, which were soon beamed around the world, revealed to us what had happened, few, if any, knew about it before it happened. Despite a lag of up to several hours between the earthquake and the impact of the tsunami, the victims were taken completely by surprise. And following that disaster, you may know, the United Nations began work on a system of tsunami warning systems in the Indian Ocean to detect tsunamis and to alert the population before they actually arrived and did such damage and caused such loss of life. It would, would it not, be an even greater tragedy were such a thing to happen again and for such disaster to occur when people had the warning and yet refused to pay any attention to it. When people failed to heed the warnings they'd received. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the eleventh year of the reign of King Zedekiah of Judah, which by our later reckoning was July the 9th, 587 BC, a terrible tragedy struck the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army poured through the broken walls of the city, killing and raping, looting and burning. A once proud city was humbled. It would be two and a half thousand years before it returned to Jewish rule. And what compounded the tragedy was that its rulers and people had been warned again and again for 40 years about what would happen, yet they failed to pay any attention to the warnings. I would suggest to you, therefore, as a title for what we look at this morning, that this was indeed a tragedy waiting to happen. The account of the tragedy, as it did happen, is recorded in the Bible and in other places in three different parts of the Bible. It's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 25, and God willing, as we come to the end of our series on Jeremiah, which will be before by the end of this year, uh, it's recorded in chapter 52, the last chapter of Jeremiah. Uh, but today we have a, <coughs> a description, a very stark description of the events, which makes it all the more poignant in Jeremiah 39. So, it will help to have the Bible in front of you, if you turn again to page 802 in the church Bibles as we look at this this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles around. Just ask someone to pass one to you. It does help to have it in front of you, not least to make sure that what I'm telling you actually is in the text and not what I've imagined. As I mentioned, the, <clears throat> the story of the fall of Jerusalem is recorded in other places outside of the Bible. Here's how Flavius Josephus, Roman citizen but Jewish historian, tells the story in his Antiquities of the Jews, which was published around 93 AD. This is what he writes. The battering ram took its last run at the walls. 
darts from the enemy's siege mounds arched into the midnight sky and struck their bark in flames. Famine had already claimed many lives inside the walls. Five Babylonian princes marched through the streets of Jerusalem, their faces illuminated by the flames. Remarkably, if you follow the news recently, the names of one of those five princes, more accurately, he was actually a leading official of King Nebuchadnezzar, made headline news in July when a small clay cuneiform tablet about the size of a credit card uh, and about that thick, sort of three quarters of an inch thick, uh, which dated from this period, actually gave the name and confirmed the name of one of the people here, the name Sarsikim. However, while such discoveries confirm the accuracy of the text of the Bible, they don't tell the whole story. More in, most important of all, Historical events do not interpret, historical accounts do not interpret the events that took place on that dreadful day, which proved to be such a seminal moment in the history of Israel and indeed of the whole world. You see, while we may describe a tsunami as a natural disaster and attribute the invasion and destruction of a city to purely human actions, driven maybe by political and economic factors, The Bible paints a different picture. In particular, as we focus this morning on the fall of Jerusalem, we discover that the Bible interprets it supremely as an act of God. Not in the sense in which the insurance companies use it to cover everything that human beings do, outside of that, but in the actual sense of what it says. The Bible says it was God who brought about the destruction of of the city of Jerusalem. Now, while most people today find that hard to accept because of our secular outlook, the people in Jerusalem, the people of Judah, found it hard to accept for a very different reason. They couldn't conceive how their God, the Lord, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, could possibly be behind the destruction of his holy city by such an unholy nation as Babylon. They thought it couldn't happen. They thought it wouldn't happen. But Jeremiah the prophet told them again and again and again that it could and would happen. He said God is going to act and he's going to use the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment. Now you may ask, how could he be so confident about this? Well, the answer is that the Lord had told him so. If you go back at the beginning of our series, and you can download stuff off the internet if you're interested, 40 years before this, Jeremiah had been called by the Lord. You read this in Jeremiah chapter 1. And the Lord had given him two visions before he called him. And, And the second of these visions, Jeremiah, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see in this vision? And he says, I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. That's Jeremiah 1.13. What did it mean? Well, the Lord told him. The Lord said to him, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. The Lord told Jeremiah 40 years before, this is going to happen. And why would it happen? Well, the Lord explains. Because of the sin of his people. I will pronounce my judgments on my, my people, 
because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. And so for 40 long years, here's Jeremiah, is called by God to go and proclaim this message that God's chosen city is about to be judged by a power from the north, and that kings will come and sit at the entrance of the gates because of the sin of God's people. And if you follow this series over 38 chapters, and it's been a long series, uh, challenging for preachers and challenging for congregation, I accept that. It's good to be challenged though, isn't it? You can almost put your finger on any page in the preceding chapters of Jeremiah and you'll find the same message again and again. Jeremiah keeps standing up. He's a very unpopular man because nobody likes his message and he keeps saying, in effect, the Lord says, I'm going to use the Babylonians as my instruments of judgment on my people and my city unless you change your ways. The sad fact was that for 40 years, nobody changed their ways. Nobody changed their minds until the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh reign when the walls of the city fell and the Babylonians flooded in. And then it was too late. Now if you've followed this far and picturing the scene in those days, pretty dreadful stuff, wasn't it? I'm glad Amber, who was studying archaeology, was able to read all the names and all the details. Well then. Um, you may be saying to yourself, well, thank goodness we don't live in those days. And I simply say to you at the outset, before you breathe a sigh of relief, no, but we do live in the last days. We do live in the last days. Now, I'll return to what we mean by that at the end of this message. But as we come to the, first of all, to the events of the fall of Jerusalem. Don't switch off. Don't doze off. I see those who are dozing off, so just... I was at a church in America recently where they, where they film you as you're preaching and put it on the computer, and uh, I'm thinking of getting one of those and just scanning the congregation as well so that uh, we'll be able to point, point you out on the, on the scene. But Okay, you see... Although our circumstances are very different, there are two things that have not changed, which remain unchanged. One, human nature. Two, character of God. So it's, it's of utmost importance that we learn the lessons of Jeremiah 39. If we are not to suffer, what will be a worse fate than the fall of Jerusalem? So, as we look at the fall of Jerusalem, I'm going to just say two things about this act of God. Because in this story, we discover God acting in two contrasting yet complementary ways. Two sides of the same coin, really. I'm going to say that we see God acting in judgment, and secondly, acting in salvation. And you see that right in this chapter here. So let's start, first of all, as we see God acting in judgment. As the walls of Jerusalem fall, as the Babylonians flood in, notice what the focus is on. The focus is on King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, the fate of King Zedekiah. If you were here last week when we looked at him, we described Zedekiah as a fickle king. He's like, someone said, a marshmallow he takes on the impression of whoever happens to be next to him. Can't make his mind up. So he's installed as a puppet king by the Babylonians on their last visit, some 11 years before, when they didn't destroy the city, they just thought, well, it's a nice city, we'll, we'll look after it, and we'll put someone in power who will do what we tell him. So they install King Zedekiah. 
But it's not long before he's listening to his advisors who tell him, look Zedekiah, this is a bad thing. Why don't we rebel against Babylon? Why don't we ally ourselves with Egypt in the south instead? Jeremiah immediately pipes up. I'm paraphrasing again. Bad idea. Terrible idea. We'll bring disaster on your head. Don't do it. Zedekiah pays no attention to the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Then and again... Here's his problem. He ignored the Lord's warnings. And sure enough, it's not long before the Babylonian army, this huge army, the superpower of the day, arrives and surrounds the whole city and cuts everybody off. And the city is laid under siege. Conditions become increasingly desperate inside the city. Water dries up, food dries up, people are dying of famine. But then comes news. The city is set alight. You can imagine the newspapers in those days. The Babylonian army, uh, the Egyptian army is coming to our relief. They're on the way from the south to save us. And sure enough, as this happens, the Babylonian army moves out and leaves, leaves off this siege which has gone on for over a year. You imagine being in the city at that time. Everybody, what's everybody saying to Jeremiah? They're saying, Jeremiah, I told you you got it wrong. You see that Jeremiah, he said... The Babylonians are going to destroy the city? Ha! Don't ally yourself with the Egyptians? Wrong. Jeremiah says, no, no, you're absolutely wrong. He tells the king's messengers, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt, then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. But once again, Zedekiah didn't listen. What happened? It wasn't even a fight. As soon as the Egyptians heard the Babylonian army was on the way, they turned tail and ran back home. What do you think the Babylonian army did? Yeah, you're right. Came straight back, surrounded the city, besieged it again. And the siege, which had been bad before, now becomes desperate. You can read the story in Lamentations, which is it's just dreadful stuff. It's about women killing their children and eating them. It's the most dreadful, horrendous scenes. But what you need to notice is this. If you were here last week, you'll notice. Even at this late hour, it's not too late for Zedekiah. If he'll only listen and surrender to the Lord's will, which in this case means surrendering to the Babylonians. Tragically, we see, he not only ignored the Lord's warnings, he refused the Lord's offers. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared. The city won't be burnt down. You and your family will live, but if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be handed over to the Babylonians. They will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from their hands. It's a last offer of salvation. Who knows? Maybe this morning is a last offer of salvation for somebody here. You've turned against God, turned against his warnings. You've heard his offer of salvation, and you're still dithering around. It was Zedekiah's last chance. He refused to accept it. He refused to accept the Lord's word. The Lord says, if you don't heed my warnings, accept my offer, there is no escape for you. So, when the city walls fall, the Babylonian officials, what do they do? They come, these five officials, and they set up a place of authority right in Jerusalem at the place of rule in local government. They sit there, and it's just what Jeremiah said. Now you think Zedekiah would say to himself, it's, it's just what he said. 
There's no escape from me. What does he do? He turns tail and runs for his life, abandons his people, abandons his city. Like a coward, but he discovers he couldn't save himself. Verses 4 and 5. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. They headed towards the Arabah, that's the Jordan Valley, at night. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. Derek Kidner comments in the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Jeremiah. His his flight, like his lifelong flight from reality, could have only one outcome. He's carried off to Riblah, which is about 200 miles north of Jerusalem. A military tribunal is set up. This is not the Babylonians, you know, going mad emotionally. It's very judicial. And the king of Babylon carries out his own brutal justice, just as Jeremiah had warned him. You see, Zedekiah couldn't save himself... And he couldn't avoid judgment. It's a dreadful story, isn't it? There at Rivalah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, killed the nobles of Judah. The last thing he sees is his own sons being killed. And then he puts out his eyes and he's carted off in bronze shackles to die in exile in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem, houses and royal palace, the temple we learn from chapter 52, is torched. The remaining walls are broken down. This will never happen again, says the Babylonians. 832 leading citizens are carried off into exile, leaving just the poor and powerless, who are no threat to the Babylonians, who are given land to farm and cultivate. All that the Lord said through Jeremiah came true. Down to the last detail, the Lord acted, and he still acts in judgment. Now, I pause to ask myself, as I always do when I preach these sermons, as I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is a God of judgment? Or do we believe that God is like some kind of indulgent parent? That no matter what we do, he'll just, you know, pat us on the head and say, it's no problem, okay. Forget it. Remember many years ago, I can mention it sermon years ago, we went on holiday. We were absolutely tired out. We went to one of these places. We weren't sure what it was. It was in Tunisia. And they had a, a swimming pool. And we sat for a good, the first week of our holiday, just recovering, reading, getting sunburnt. And I love these kind of holidays for one particular reason. I just love watching other people around the pool. And, and you know, and the, the characters and just seeing, you know, trying to work out who they are and where they're from. I'll always remember, I can still remember the name, there was a mother, I think she was probably a poor single mother who was trying struggling, she had a small toddler who was about four years old, his name was Enver, I'll tell you why we knew that, because all the time we sat there at the pool she kept saying, Enver, don't do that, Enver, if you do that you'll be in trouble, Enver, if you do that you'll be smacked, Enver just didn't pay a blind bit of notice. For a whole week I sat listening, Enver, 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 and Enver did nothing at all. Why not? Because he knew. He was on to a winner. His mother would never do anything to him. She would never discipline him. And some of us think that God is like that. Oh yeah, you keep, you keep come to Charlotte Chapel. And you keep, God keeps speaking to you and saying, not, I'll not mention any names, I'll get in trouble here, but you know, Peter, don't do that. You'll be judged. And we just go on our way because we think God is like an indulgent parent. And the record of scripture and the record of this story tells us there is a God who is a God of judgment. He acts in judgment as Zedekiah learned to his cost. Philip Rackham's series of sermons 
book I've recommended several times in this series. This is what he writes. Jeremiah 39 stands as a warning against every naive hope of escaping the judgment to come. Zedekiah suffered a worse fate, a fate worse than death. To his dismay, he discovered the day of judgment to be a living hell. The saddest thing about the final chapter in Zedekiah's tragic story is that the king could have written a happy ending. Right up to the very end, God gave him every opportunity to repent for his sins. Jeremiah repeatedly went to Zedekiah, pleaded with him to turn to God in faith and repentance, but the king rejected every last entreaty. So, this story is a warning to us that God is a God of judgment. Now, Jeremiah 39 is not the end of the story. You don't have time to look at it, but if you go to the very last book of the Bible, you'll discover it ends, the story of history ends with the fall of Babylon and the rise of Jerusalem, or more accurately, the descent of the new Jerusalem down from heaven to earth. Don't have time to develop that. Just think about it if you know the Bible, of the new Jerusalem. But you know what they celebrate in heaven? Well, they celebrate two things. We'll come to the second one in a minute. They celebrate God's salvation, salvation of the Lamb, but... The people in heaven celebrate the judgment of God that he's a God of justice and wrong will be put right. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. If that were not so, our world and all that is in it would be a dreadful prospect. There is a God who is a God of justice and judgment. Now, such a prospect might fill us with dread if this were the only way in which God acts. But the other side of the coin that this story reveals, the fall of Jerusalem, is that God not only acts in judgment, he also acts in salvation. Verses 11 to 18. And Jeremiah 39 concludes with two people who escaped the judgment. Did you see that? The first was Jeremiah the prophet, verses 11 through 14. In the midst of the carnage, you imagine the scene. You can just kind of visualize it, can't you? A dreadful scene of these Babylonians just racing through the city, burning, torching, raping, looting. They've got free course to do what they want. That's the spoils of war in those days. There's no tribunal. There's no human rights commission following this. There's no one going to call them to account. Everyone is fair game except one man. King Nebuchadnezzar sends orders through the commander of the guard and he says, you can touch anyone, you can do just what you like except for Jeremiah the prophet. He is protected by the king's orders. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. Verse 12. So Jeremiah is taken from the courtyard of the, of the guard where he's been held during these final months of the siege. He's handed over to a man called Gedaliah who will meet God willing next week. One of the few Families that had protected and supported Jeremiah. Now, no doubt the king issues these instructions because his informers have told him that Jeremiah is pro-Babylonian. He's told people to surrender. His informers have told him, how about Jeremiah the prophet? He's sympathetic to the cause of Babylon. But he is wrong. Jeremiah's allegiance is not to the Babylonians, but to the Lord. And the salvation of Jeremiah, just like the judgment of Zedekiah, is ultimately due not to the Babylonians, but to the Lord. They're just his instruments. So while Jeremiah is protected by the king's orders on one level, 
He's protected by orders from a much higher authority. He's protected by the Lord's word. Back to the call of Jeremiah. After the Lord gave him this terrible commission, you know, you're going to be preaching for 40 years to people who won't pay any attention at all. Some pastors think they've got it hard. Believe me, that's nothing. 40 years to a congregation who just rejected everything he said. The Lord said to him, get yourself ready, stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, they will not overcome you, for I am with you. And I will rescue you, declares the Lord. That's a promise that Jeremiah held on through all those events. He lived by that word, even in the darkest days. When it looked as though his prospects were non-existent. And you remember, if you've been to this series, the darkest day of all. When the king said to his officials who were out for Jeremiah's blood, said, you do what you like with him. And they took Jeremiah and they dropped him in a deep cistern. Dried up except for mud at the bottom. And he sank in it to his armpits. With no food, no light, no hope. But God, God's promises remained true. And God rescued him, as you know, through this brave official. A man called Ebed-Melech. Who risked everything to stand up and speak for Jeremiah. And that man is the second person to whom the Lord, whom the Lord saved when the Jerusalem fell. Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, verses 15 to 18, and back in chapter 38, the story. You see, when the soldiers, this is even more remarkable in some ways than the salvation of Jeremiah, because when the soldiers ran through Jerusalem, they only had one name on the list. You know, only one guy you, you, you're not to touch. It's called Jeremiah the prophet. He's untouchable. Ebed-Melech wasn't on the list. In fact, if you'd been a gambling man, which I hope you're not, um, you wouldn't have given much for Ebed-Melech's chances. Why? Because he was official of King Zedekiah. Why? Because he was a black African. Foreign, he didn't count for anything. Why? Because he was probably a eunuch. Emasculated. You'd think such a guy was a prime candidate to be run through by a Babylonian sword or worse. Would you not? But although he was not protected by Nebuchadnezzar's orders, Ebed-Melech had a much stronger guarantee of safety. For he was like Jeremiah, protected by the Lord's promise. A word which Jeremiah received from the Lord and had given to him. The Lord said, go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I'm about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. At that time they'll be fulfilled before your eyes, but I will rescue you, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. Imagine having that security. When the soldiers are racing through the city, when everything's being torched, the screams and cries of the dying. And here's Ebed-Melech, this black African. An official of King Zedekiah, prime target, and nobody can touch him. Why? Because he's protected by God's promise. Wow. What a promise. What a protection. And why does he receive such preferential treatment? Well, you'd expect the Lord to say, would you not? You know, I will rescue you, says the Lord, because you risk your life to save my prophet, Jeremiah. But although this is what Abed-Melech did, did you notice, not, it's not why he's saved. 
As we read what the Lord says, we discover that Ebed-Melech is saved by faith. Did you notice that? Verse 18. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. You see, you need to go back to the story. Jeremiah is number one enemy in the nation. The courtiers around the king, those who really count, have taken him and thrown him into a cistern and he's just going to be left there to die a miserable death because they don't want to actually spill his blood. Now, who's going to speak up for Jeremiah? Well, there's nothing in it for Ebed-Melech, believe me. This is a big risk. So why does he do it? Well, it's not because he suddenly has a burst of conscience or is concerned for human rights, which he is. No, it's because he trusts in the Lord. He's already a believer. And like every believer, faith works through action. You're saved by faith, not by works, but you're saved for works. So when this happens, Ebed Malik risks all. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. He knows that what's been done to Jeremiah is wrong. He is used by God. True faith always issues in action. Okay, students, I'm not saying much about students. Okay, your faith will see itself in action when you stand up and speak up. Or just sometimes just act in a way that is right and good. And declares your allegiance that you trust in the Lord, even when you're the most unpopular person on the course. Or in your flat or whatever it is, in your accommodation. He speaks up for the Lord. As I read what he did, you know, it reminds me of the words of Jesus. Do you remember what he said? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's faith in the Lord Jesus. What a contrast with Zedekiah. He proved the opposite. Whoever wants to try and save his life will lose it. And what a surprise. Here's the wonderful thing, and I can talk about internationals here which I left to do, I've been a missionary and lived and worked on three continents. What a surprise that a foreigner with no rights, he has no rights in law, and because he's probably a eunuch, he has no rights in religion, the religion of Israel, should be saved by faith. The wonderful way in which God's kingdom is, is beginning to expand beyond the bounds of physical Israel to people from all over the world. And as you think of Ebed Melech, if you know the Bible well, you go through to the New Testament, you think of one of his compatriots. Again, a government official traveling through a desert, reading the scriptures, didn't understand what it's all about. And a man called Philip comes alongside the chariot and runs along and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I? Then somebody tells me. And the Ethiopian hears the gospel and he responds. And he says, what, can I get baptized? What's to stop me? Philip says, tell him to stop the chariot. There's a, there's a pool by the roadside. And there he's baptized. If, if, if church history is right, he goes back to his country, to Ethiopia, probably, again, the same sort of area that Ebed Melech came from. And God begins to use him in a powerful way. And God can use you. You may think you're a foreigner. You don't count for much in this country. You're an overseas student and you're far from home. Listen, if God can reach you and use you, God can reach you. He can use you and take you back. We've seen wonderful examples of this in our international fellowship over the years of God reaching people and taking them back to their own countries and using them in powerful ways beyond comprehension. So Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech were saved from judgment that fell on the city of Jerusalem because they believed in God's word 
And God kept his promises, as he always does. So the last book of the Bible not only celebrates God's judgment, it celebrates God's salvation. After this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Celebrating God's final salvation. Nearly finished. But let me conclude as I promised. We began by saying that we should be thankful we don't live in those days that we've read about in Jeremiah 39. But we should remember that we are living in the last days. You see, the Bible describes the period between the return of Jesus to heaven and his final return from heaven in power and great glory when history will end as the last days. And even more so than the fall of Jerusalem and the events that preceded it and the warnings and so on, it is a time for two things. It is a time to heed God's warnings of judgment. And secondly, it is a time, the last days are a time to accept God's offer of salvation. Speaking to the leading intellectual thinkers in the great city of Athens, a messenger of Jesus, Paul, this is what he told them. Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. What does he tell them? God's going to judge the world. Change your ways. Repent. We should not, therefore, make the mistake that Zedekiah made and so many people make. We should not mistake God's patience for his impotence. In one of the last letters to be written in the New Testament, Peter's second letter, the Apostle Peter begins in his final chapter by warning people. He says, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming, he promised? This judgment, it's never going to happen. And he says this, the Lord is not slow, keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So I say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, or you're living in rebellion against God, or you're a Christian who's going your own way, God is patient with you. Today's a day of salvation, not judgment yet. But there is judgment. So Peter concludes with a fire warning. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. 2 Peter 3 verse 10. It's a terrible thing to be hit by an unexpected tragedy. But how much worse to suffer a tragedy about which you were warned and yet you failed to take any action. You see, it's a tragedy waiting to happen. And it's possible some of us here this morning are a tragedy waiting to happen. But who knows when Christ will return? Who knows when the final call will come, the final opportunity? Let me conclude with a quote from a great preacher from when he ministered over the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century in London, G. Campbell Morgan, preaching on these verses. What he says, We in our security need to be reminded that for us also there may come the 11th year and the 4th month 
and the ninth day of the month when God will hurl us from our place of privilege as he surely will unless we are true to him. Let's hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. Let's pray together.